Baseball. Hi, and welcome to the fourth episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst for Sports Info Solutions. The goal of this podcast is to both inform and entertain. Baseball analytics are cool, interesting, and fun. Our company develops them and provides them to MLB teams, media, and fantasy baseball outlets. We'll give you a peek into our world, talk to important people around the industry about analytics storylines, and share what we find to be cool, interesting, and fun. On today's show, we'll be joined by former Major League pitcher and current broadcaster David Cohn to talk about the book he just wrote with Jack Curry. My colleague Andrew Kine and I will talk about what Cohn talks about, look at some leaderboards and recent work. We'll have the ridiculous numbers of the day, and we'll go extra innings with a commentary on analytics in broadcasting. We start the show with our opening monologue, which we'll call... Batter up! You're probably well aware of the triple crown caliber numbers put up by Dodgers outfielder and first baseman Cody Bellinger but are you aware of how good he's been on the defensive side? Bellinger ranks first in the majors with 13 defensive runs saved, most of those coming as a right fielder. Bellinger has exceeded all expectations by becoming a complete defensive player. He has seven runs saved from range and positioning. He's catching everything he's supposed to catch and more, including a home run robbery against Brewers star Christian Yelich. Additionally, Bellinger has four assists without the help of a cutoff man. He even threw a guy out at first base on Sunday. He totaled two over a little more than 800 innings for his career prior to this season. He's allowed only three of 18 base runners to take an extra base on a hit. That's great. Bellinger isn't the only one excelling in the Dodgers outfield. His teammate Alex Verdugo has nine defensive runs saved, third in MLB. In all, the Dodgers outfield leads the majors with 21 defensive runs saved. The team is at the top in defense overall. They haven't missed Yasiel Puig or Yasmani Grandal at all. The Dodgers once again look like the class of the National League, but this year's team has a little bit of a different look to it. Keep an eye on them and on Bellinger's defense to see if they can keep it up throughout the season. David Cohn ranks 55th all-time in pitching wins above replacement, sandwiched between Hall of Famers Juan Marichal and Don Frysdale. He ranked in the top 10 in his league in FIP 10 times. He was a five-time All-Star and won the Cy Young Award in 1994. As a broadcaster, he's embraced the analytics as much as anyone in the industry, doing color commentary on Yankee telecasts on Yes. And now he and Jack Curry have written a book, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. It's available now. David, thanks for joining us. What's the purpose of the book? Well, Mark, you know, we wanted to really uh, get into the personal side a little bit, going back to childhood, and just show uh, kind of an honest account of the story of a pitcher, pitcher from wiffle ball games in his backyard, pretending to be Louis Tiant, and naming his backyard Conway Park to, uh, to the minor league days, to the trials and tribulations, and a lot of the mistakes along the way as well, a lot of human interest stories, and you know, I just wanted to show the vulnerability that a lot of pitchers feel emotionally on the mound and how sometimes you can, you can almost lose your mind out there and how important it is for the pitcher-catcher relationship to help pitchers get through that. So, you know, it's not just uh, it's not just about uh, a feel-good story. It's about admitting a lot of the mistakes that I made a- along the way and trying to uh, own up to it and give an honest accounting of all of that. One common thread among many pitchers is that they're meticulous planners, you certainly among them. Uh, how would your career have been different if you had, a- had access to things like spin rate, effective velocity, pitch framing, umpire tendencies, and all the different things that companies like ours or StatCast or TrackMan have to offer? I would have absolutely loved it. Uh, you know, I, I do think you, you sort of separate it out, you know, the, 
the sabermetric side and the, the, the sort of stat cast analytics side and spin rate included in that. And uh, I definitely would have loved to have uh, tinkered with uh, some of the spin rate analysis, uh, especially in practice and in between starts and pitch design. I think I would have loved that. Uh, I've certainly used some of that technology in trying to learn how to play golf on launch monitors. And I know a lot of those companies that, that started in the golf industry have kind of come over to the baseball side of things now. But uh, to me, I would have been fascinated with that, Mark. Uh, I, would have, I would have used it uh, just about every side session I had when it, whenever I had access to that, that technology. Is it possible that you might have used it too much? I, there is a question of overload, without a doubt. Uh, you know, the last thing you want when you're in the middle of a game is to be overloaded with uh, the too much information. It, it can take away from your feel. Uh, to me, you know, how the baseball feels in your hand and how you're executing pitches and the conviction that you throw those pitches with uh, really still are, are paramount. They still need to be in the forefront of, of, a, of a pitcher's mind when, when he's in the middle of a game. Uh, but certainly during practice, I would have been much more receptive to just about all of the information that's available now. The book's about the education of a pitcher. I want to talk about it from this perspective. How did you get an education in analytics? You know, it really started, Mark, with me uh, back in the early 90s. Uh, my agent was a guy named Steve Fear, who was Don Fear's brother, uh, who ran our Players Association or was the lead uh, counsel for our Players Association for years. And I went to arbitration against the Mets a couple of times and beat them twice. And uh, the Mets were sort of centered around a lot of the old traditional stats, uh, one loss record for a pitcher, ERA, you know, and, and things that sometimes were out of the control of a starting pitcher. And uh, Steve Fear introduced me to some some uh, some ways to peel back the layers and certainly the numbers that we had back in the early 90s, he was very progressive with. And it really opened my eyes and it really worked on the arbitrator too. We won both of those cases. And and uh, it was really, to me, I was, I was the first one, I think, in arbitration that really argued against pitchers' uh, one-loss record as a barometer or as the sole barometer for the value of a pitcher. And uh, from that point on, it, it sort of only grew. How long did it take you to get comfortable with something like FIP? Uh, it, it made sense to me right away, Mark. It really did. Uh, you know, I, I had argued for years that uh, a starting pitcher's job is to, to – uh, to do his best uh, to control things that were uh, in his control, so to speak. Uh, you know, the quality of the pitches that you threw. Uh, once the ball left the bat, uh, you were kind of uh, at the mercy of, of your defensive uh, abilities behind you. Uh, certainly the random variance of things, the luck of the bounce of a wall, or you know, the batting average on balls in play. Uh, you know, you really didn't have any control over that. So yeah, finally, uh, a metric that showed exactly what the pitcher had control of, to me, just rung on, just sort of the light, the light bulb went on in my head and said, this is what I've been thinking about and talking about for years. This was the concept that I, I tried to use at arbitration that I mentioned earlier back in the early 90s. And now we actually have a, a definitive metric to point to. What do you think of some of the defensive stats that are out there? Uh, I absolutely love them. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, obviously uh, sample size matters. Um, there can be some noise in some of the defensive metrics, and maybe some people still to this day believe they aren't as reliable as some of the offensive metrics. And certainly there may be some truth in that, but compared to what we had before, uh, you know, I, I was uh, active when Rafael Palmeiro won the gold glove for first base uh, for the first base award, and he didn't even play first base that year. So <laughs> I, I, I lived during the era where 
the gold glove was awarded more on reputation than actual skill level. And uh, to me, that was uh, very egregious in my mind, especially the, the Palmero Award when he was a DH for the most of, better part of that year. I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but he only played maybe 30 games at first base and won the gold glove. So uh, I'm a big fan of the defensive metrics now. I, I think we're just scratching the surface when you, now that you have exit velocity and some of the, some of the uh, stat cast uh, information now that, that uh, the defensive metrics are just going to get better and better as, as we move forward. What is it like to educate uh, some of the other broadcasters out there? How much stubbornness do you find? There is stubbornness, although I've seen a lot more open up really over the last five years. It seems like year over year that more and more uh, ex-players kind of uh, get to the point where they start to understand uh, what these metrics mean. And I think a, a, the, a lot of the uh, misperceptions are is that there's not common grounds. You're either for the new metrics or you're against them. You're either old school or you're new school. And I see a lot of common denominators where some of the old school theories are really proven with some of the new school metrics. Some of the things that we thought were true back in, back in the day, as they say, uh, are really proven to be true almost as much as some of the old theories are proven to, to not be true. So uh, I think the first thing the players need to do is educate themselves, you know, go to a Sabre conference, uh, read some books, uh, read Mark Simon's books. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot that before you start to attack a new school of thinking, uh, you better educate yourself first. Is there someone, a player out there, someone had, had asked this last week and we wanted to bring it back this week. Is there someone out there who's, uh, you, you changed your perspective on how good they were uh, after looking at uh, some of the analytic data? Uh, you know, I try to uh, look back to, to uh, the players that I played against, you know, and then personal experience. Um, um, Certainly some of the, the players nowadays, I, I would say uh, somebody like a Ben Zobrist, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who's obviously still current, uh, his value defensively and moving around the field and still maintaining, uh, you know, a positive defensive metrics, uh, the, the overall value of defense. I think the thing that attracts me is that it, it's the all around ball player now uh, that really gets more credit. The guy that runs the base as well, the guy that uh, plays defensively plays defense well as well as offense uh, and the value of getting on base times on base the value of how you run the bases when you get on base uh, is so much better now and uh, you know that's that's the best part for me is that a lot of these all-around ball players are finally getting credit where credit is due what would you tell a pitcher that he needs to be educated in today and how much should be analytic based as, as opposed to like instinct what I think what a pitcher needs to be aware of nowadays is uh, pitch design. Um, you know, I'm a real big believer in tunneling. You know, we used to call it uh, coming in, you know, on the, on the same plane, uh, you know, where your pitches kind of all come in on the same plane. I, I would be very interested in that. Uh, I think current pitchers should be very interested in their release points, keeping track of that through data. Uh, keeping track of your spin rates, keeping track of uh, your ability to tunnel all of your pitches because, you know, if, if you have the proper spin rate, all of the movement ha- happens about 30 feet in front of home plate, and that's when the hitter has to make a decision. So the more pitches you have that are deceptive coming in in that tunneling uh, sort of same plane kind of a theory, that, you know, the, the more effective and the more deceptive you can be to hitters. Who's your favorite pitcher to watch from an analytic perspective right now? Uh, I would say, uh, you know, I, I'm really interested in Max Scherzer, not just because of his success rate, because of his style of pitching. Uh, and, uh, you know, he reminds me a lot of Pedro Martinez. And 
the old school pitching coaches used to say that power pitchers and four seam fastball pitchers needed to throw top to down, meaning you had to get your arm up on top and you had to throw the ball downhill. And I think Max Scherzer and Pedro Martinez before him kind of break that mold where they throw from a lower three quarters angle. They almost get behind the ball and push it kind of a pushing action that could make the ball ride up in the zone uh, a lot more. So, you know, I think uh, pitchers with that style, uh, Scherzer, Pedro Martinez, really have kind of broken the mold. And, you know, there's not uh, a one-size-fit-all style for pitchers or pitching coaches to preach. I think there's a lot of different ways to get it done, a lot of different release points from which you can get it done uh, from, and uh, that that should be encouraged. Diversity should be encouraged. Diversity in styles, uh, diversity in grips. Uh, you know, I think all of these kind of play into, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a, not a, you know, an anti-cloning style of a pitcher. Uh, and Scherzer, I think there's, there's really nobody that kind of throws the baseball like him nowadays. And he kind of, he reminds me of you. Uh, I think maybe in terms of repertoire, yep. you know, I, you know, he, he um, certainly, you know, a power fastball and a really good slider and a good change up off of that. So I was kind of a three-pitch pitcher myself, even though I, I did throw a slower curve at times, especially as I got older, evolved and lost, lost skills uh, on down the road. But, uh, yeah, I, I think he's better than me. <laughs> I think he's definitely got a, a – even though the early part of his career, it took him a while to figure out his mechanics. But I think that the run he's had over the last five years or so has just been incredible. The peak of his career is just, I think, a little higher than the peak of my career. Uh, all right. So we, we always ask our guests to do a list. Uh, and the list that we want from you is the three players who you most enjoyed having behind you defensively. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I think about uh, this is a great question because, you know, sometimes the eye test doesn't match up with the new metrics that, that, that we have now at, at, at available. Uh, um, you know, I think about players that, that I saw play and players that played behind me. I certainly thought that Gary Carter, was a really good catcher defensively. And he was my catcher when I was a rookie with the Mets. And I think the metrics nowadays kind of bear that out. And that, that confirms the eye test that I had. Uh, I thought Gary Carter was just fantastic. Uh, you know, another catcher, I think, Yvonne Rodriguez, that I played against would, would probably be in that category or maybe even a bump above because of his throwing arm and his arm strength. Uh, as far as shortstops, you know, I kind of stay up the middle. Uh, you know, Kevin Elster was a really good shortstop for the Mets. Uh, I'm not sure that he has enough, you know, enough of a background uh, in terms to rank very highly on some of the defensive metrics. But uh, certainly Ozzie Smith uh, is right at the top of that list. I think in just about everybody's category is somebody who I played against. And I actually had him as my shortstop on a couple of all-star teams that I played on. So I guess I can say he was my teammate, at least for one game. Uh, <laughs> Um, center field, uh, you know, or outfielders in general, uh, you know, even though Bernie Williams didn't, um, he didn't have a reputation for a good throwing arm. I thought he, he had excellent range. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, the best center fielder I probably saw was Andrew Jones. He was just remarkable. I think a lot of the Braves pitchers, uh, including Greg Maddox, uh, really talked about him. And I think, think the metrics really kind of backed that up. Uh, so I, you know, to me, if, if I had a choice, I'd have Gary Carter, uh, you know, Ozzie, Ozzie uh, Smith at shortstop and Andre Jones at center field. Oh, no, Keith Hernandez. Yeah, absolutely. Keith at <laughs> first base. Uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. Uh, that was on my list, too. I know I only had three choices. But yeah, <laughs> Keith is an uh, all-time great. Yep. You know, the thing that made Keith great, too, was that he was, uh, 
he was a coach on the field too. He was always one step ahead of the game. He was barking at me on the mound on what pitch to throw or what sequence to, to be ahead of. Two last questions for David Cohn. Is there a stat we can invent for you? Wow. I, I'm not sure I'm qualified enough to, to make that request, to tell you the truth. Uh, but, you know, to me, I've always been interested in, and I think, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the framing issue is, I'm, uh, is something to me that just makes so much sense. You know, for years, we used to talk about um, catchers. Boy, he's nice to throw to. Boy, he's got soft hands. It just it gives pitchers confidence. Uh, I threw to a catcher named Charlie O'Brien, who had great hands, great framing ability before we had, you know, the metric to, to for framing, catcher framing. I would say, you know, um, you know, I always thought if there was some metric you can come up with that combines with framing and called third strikes, I think Greg Maddox, to me, got more called third strikes on the inside corner to left-handed batters. Uh, you know, if there's a way to, to, to marry, uh, uh, you know, how much credit you give to the, to the catcher, along with the accuracy of the pitcher, and, and then marry that with uh, call third strikes with people that have a, a large enough sample size. So I'm not sure if that makes sense or not, but uh, to me that's what I always look at is the ability of pitchers to get called third strikes on the inside corner with fastballs and, and uh, how much framing and who's umpiring uh, behind home plate uh, really, really uh, makes a difference in that metric. But, I, you know, I, I see it nowadays. A lot of pitchers are throwing more breaking balls. Analytics show that, you know, that, Less fastballs and more off-speed stuff uh, tend to work. Uh, so that gets, uh, that gets you in a position on an at-bat where there's a lot of curveballs thrown, but then when there's two strikes and the hitter starts laying off of those curveballs, that the inside corner is open for a call third strike. So that's the metric I would look for is how many pitchers, and I'm sure Greg Maddox is at the top of the list, uh, got called third strikes on the inside corner with fastballs. And David, last question. What are the primary lessons that you want someone to take away from the book? You know, I think the, the primary lesson to me and the, the common theme is, is how much I pushed back against kind of some old school philosophy along the way. And, you know, I, I butted heads with pitching coaches throughout my minor league career. I, I really believed in my style. and My style was change arm angles, throw sidearm sliders. You know, I was trying to be like Louis Tiant, who I idolized when I was, uh, when I was a kid uh, trying to learn how to pitch. And, I've had so many pitching coaches that tried to change my style. I had kind of a wrapping wrist style. I was real wristy. I relied on a lot of wrist snap to generate spin on the baseball. You know, I, those are all things that I would, that pitching coaches tried to break me of along the way. So to me, uh, it's the pushback and it kind of fits in with the uh, new school metrics. You know, uh, there's a constant pushback on the old school theories. And, and I think it's good to challenge the way things have always been done and it's okay to stay true to yourself if you really believe in a certain style that you're doing. And, you know, I, I, if there's one common theme, uh, it's, it's don't be afraid to ask those type of tough questions. Don't be afraid to push back. The book is Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher by David Cohn and Jack Curry, available wherever books are sold. David, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Mark. Keep up the great work. Hi, I'm Corey March of Sports Info Solutions, and I'm here to tell you about SISBets.com. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. Now you can leverage our proven projections model to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing which pitcher may surpass his strikeout prop or whether your favorite running back projects to go over his rushing yards total. Just choose the type of bet, the player, and enter the money line to see the SIS Bets recommendation. That's SISBets.com.
You're out. We move on to our segment called Instant Replay. It's where we look at projects we're working on and articles we've written. We'll also share some leaderboards and interesting stats we've found. Andrew Kine from R&D joins me now. We'll start by talking about what David Cohn talked about. There were a couple of cool things in there. Uh, one is that I've now done a couple of different things where the name Charlie O'Brien has come up. So I thought it was pretty cool that uh, he mentioned Charlie O'Brien's defensive excellence as well. It's a good catcher whose name there, uh, that uh, you should know. What were your takeaways? I really liked how he talked about old school versus new school and how it's not necessarily one versus the other, but you know, a lot of old school type theories are actually being proven by new school analytics. And I liked how he said that before you attack new school thinking, you need to educate yourself. Uh, and it's, it's refreshing, I think, to hear that from a former player like him and now a current broadcaster and someone who I wouldn't have really expected to have uh, had that kind of grasp on some of the new analytics, but I really enjoyed the conversation that you had with him. And how about that? I thought it was funny that he brought up that in the 80s, he was doing arbitration against the Mets, and his agent said, forget win-loss record, we'll do other stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool to hear. It was really cool to hear how he grasped uh, FIP and how he, when he was pitching, he knew that it was things that he wanted to control and, and controlling himself, like the strikeouts and the walks and the home runs, uh, and, and being able to hear that from a former pitcher was was pretty cool. You couldn't necessarily hear it in the excitement of my voice, but when we asked him about the stat that we wanted him to invent, that was impromptu. He didn't know that that was, that he knew kind of that that was coming, but he, we didn't know that he was going to say what he said. And what he said was something we do, which was uh, pretty cool. I want to get to that, but first he brought up uh, catchers. He, well, we will get to that. We, he brought up catchers. He brought up called third strikes. He brought up the difficulty of getting that called third strike on the inside corner. Andrew did some lookups related to that. I want him to share those. Sure. So I looked up what David was talking about for called third strikes on the inside corner with fastballs. I looked up for the last three years, so since the start of 2017, and just the raw leaders here, Derek Holland, number one, uh, with 73 wow. inside fastball called strikes, uh, called third strikes, and then followed by Jose Quintana with 69, David Price with 52, Aaron Nola with 50, and Chris Sale and his teammate Rick Porcello with 48. David Price would have been a good guess because he throws a lot of those darts to the, but the outside and inside corner really spots his fastball well. That, that, that's pretty cool. Was there, any, uh, was there anything else that you took from that? Yeah, I mean, Holland is one, having him at the top was, was surprising Shocker. to me. Yeah, uh, but he, I know last year was something that we looked at a lot was players who were pitching more inside with their fastballs. And last year, there were a lot of Mets at the top of that list, like Jacob deGrom and Steven Matz, Zach Wheeler, but Holland was among them. So that was something that he was, I think, emphasizing a lot last year, and it shows up here. Aaron Nola is another one that uh, personally I liked because I, I like how when a lefty's up, he throws that two-seamer that it, when you see it, it actually looks like it's going to hit the lefty right on the hip, and then it runs back. Uh, right over the inside corner. So that's one of my favorite pitches, and I wasn't super surprised to see him on this list. Uh, but I thought it was pretty cool and, and something that we could look up off of what David had mentioned. There you go, fresh content for uh, both for him and for us. And the stat that he wanted to invent, so we do that. It's called Strike Zone Run Save. We brought it up on one of our uh, previous podcasts, but I do want to talk about it briefly here. Strike Zone Run Save, you can go on the internet, you can go to our blog, sportsinfosolutionsblog.com, and you can find about six, seven articles down. What is strike zone run saved? It'll be there. It'll explain the, the mathematics behind it in a little more detail. Basically, we divide the credit 
not just between the catcher and the umpire, but we take the pitcher and the batter into account as well. And that's why our numbers for pitch framing, which you can find on Fangraphs RSZ on the catcher leaderboards on the fielding page, that's why our numbers aren't necessarily as aggressive as some of the other numbers. I will run down the leaders, the guys that are the best pitch framers in totality. Uh, and again, using the last three seasons, Tyler Flowers of the Braves, he's terrific. There have been a lot of articles read, uh, written about him. I definitely recommend checking some of those out. Austin Hedges of the Padres is very good. I think not as well known as some of the other guys because uh, Yasmani Grandal is kind of the, the premier guy when it comes to that. Flowers is another premier guy. Buster Posey is another guy that's up there, although he's not in this top five. Uh, Austin Hedges is definitely a good one. Christian Vasquez of the Red Sox. Both Red Sox catchers, Vasquez and Leon, uh, are very good. Uh, at getting extra strikes for their pitchers. And Martin Maldonado, what a difference he is from Salvador Perez for the Royals. Uh, he's very good at getting uh, just about everything uh, for his pitchers. Sal Perez has trouble getting a low strike. He can get the high strike, but he can't get the low one. Maldonado can get that and more. If you take per pitch into account, like the guys that are backups, the guys that don't play as much, Austin Barnes of the Dodgers, uh, you don't miss a beat by losing Grandal. Austin Barnes of the Dodgers has been terrific. He's been great for Yim Jin Ryu, uh, among other uh, pitchers. Uh, he's been great for Kershaw as well. He's, he's been terrific for just about everybody they've got. And also Jeff Mathis, who is the Fielding Bible Award winner for 2018. And he makes the catch. Let's talk about some of the research we've done in the last week. This is a little old, but we'll mention it anyway. Our Defensive Player of the Month for April was Lorenzo Cain of the Brewers. He's pertinent because we're going to talk about home run robberies, which we just wrote about. Cain has three this season. That's the most in the majors. A few days ago, we had five home run robberies in a three-day span. That got us to looking. We've had 20 this season, uh, and we're, about, we're at the quarter pole right now. Uh, we're on pace. If you want to say on pace, it's a little dicey to do that. Technically, we're on pace for 80. You can't expect 20 to repeat itself uh, four consecutive quarters, so to speak. Right. Thank you to those who have pointed that out to us uh, yeah. on Twitter, certainly. But that being said, the fly ball rate across the league is definitely up. Uh, there's a lot more deeper fly balls. So it, it's, it's not super surprising to see that home run robberies, or at least those opportunities, might be up, uh, given that home runs in general have, have also gone up. Um, so we, we are seeing them rise over the past few years. And how about that Shaggy Bradley Jr. one uh, not too long ago? That was probably uh, one of the more impressive ones this season, if not the last few seasons. Our stat of the week, we tried to figure out who the number one pitcher in the world is using a formula that you can find on BillJamesOnline.com. Bill created this uh, formula that utilizes game score to determine best pitcher in the world, and it goes back. It doesn't just look at your last... 30 starts. It looks back at an, a larger body of work. Uh, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer are in a battle for the, the number one spot. They're at the top. The more interesting thing, I thought, was the two guys that were rising up the list. Luis Castillo jumped about 20 spots since the start of the season. So did Matthew Boyd. Those are two guys to watch. We've watched them this year uh, for, for work-related reasons. Castillo's got the impressive changeup. Boyd has the impressive slider. They've both been very good. Yep. Yeah, Castillo, I love watching his changeup. He's one to watch, and Boyd is also rising pretty quickly. Yeah, Matthew Boyd with the slider has been very good for the Tigers. Uh, he's a good story, not just on the mound, but off the mound as well. Andrew did a couple of cool studies. I want to get into one of them. Uh, you did uh, a way to visualize range that I don't think has necessarily been seen uh, before. Uh, you did it for shortstops. You did it uh, looking at how often they turn batted balls into outs. Uh, what was the coolest thing that uh, came from that? 
I think the coolest thing, uh, essentially what I was trying to do is, is that it was looking, using shortstop starting positions, which is something that we chart here. It's something that we could also have done with StatCast, but it's something that we chart here internally uh, where they start on each batted ball. And then we're also able to compare that to where the ball was actually hit to see how far they can range in either direction. So I thought just in general, that was something that I've been trying to do for a while. So it was pretty cool. And, and I liked how looking at some of the top shortstops like Nick Ahmed, Andrewton Simmons, two guys that you touched on in the last podcast, uh, they visually look very solid and Nick Ahmed uh, in particular, very good up the middle. And it, it's kind of shown uh, with this uh, method. And if you compare them against shortstops who don't necessarily have as great of range or as great of a defensive reputation, it's, it's really clear between uh, those kinds of shortstops. The cool thing in this article is when you, when you do like an overlay of one shortstop over another or the league average, uh, you can really see the difference uh, between the two. And the gaps are what are essentially the, the most interesting thing. Um, we did an article for The Athletic as well about best outfield arms. Ramon Laureano and Yasiel Pui were 1-2. I guess I spoiled it for you, but if you want to read who the top 10 were, uh, you can check it out. Leave your thoughts in the comments. I responded to probably about 20 or 30 people uh, that responded with uh, different hows and whys. I think the thing about that that I liked was it's not something that you can easily do. Uh, we have the information that allows us to do it. We know how often the guy held a base runner, uh, prevented him from going first to third on a base hit or second to home. Uh, and when you combine that with throwing a guy out, you look at where the outfielder was, shallow, medium, or deep when he made the play. Uh, to do that, you can create a run-save metric. And uh, I will tie back to that for the ridiculous number of the 10. But first, uh, I'm going to have Andrew go first on that. Ridiculous numbers of the day. Uh, my ridiculous number has to do with Vlad Guerrero Jr., who's off to a little bit of a slow start here. But through Sunday, only 30% of the pitches that he's seen so far have been in the strike zone. That's the lowest rate if you set the minimum to 50 plate appearances, and the next closest batter is at 34%, so four percentage points away. And why is that ridiculous? Well, if you look at this sample of players, the standard deviation in zone rate is actually three percentage points. So Vlad is basically an outlier. He's in a tier of his own. Right. So <laughs> for him to be 20 years old and, and only have a little bit more than 50 uh, plate appearances in his career to have that low of, of a zone rate not seeing much to hit is pretty ridiculous just to put that in a single game perspective 30 percent that's if you see 20 pitches in a, in a game that's like six in the strike zone for an entire game yep. that's nothing yep ridiculous that's ridiculous yes all right for my ridiculous stat i wanted to look at the uh, record holder for outfield arm run saved in a season because we did this article on uh, ramon loriano and Puig and the other uh, outfielders that have great arms now. The record holder uh, within the time in which we covered this statistic is Richard Hidalgo, a uh, former outfielder for the Astros. He also played for the Mets and some other teams too. He played from 1997 to 2005. I do remember his arm was ridiculous and it was accurate. In 2003, Richard Hidalgo had 22 assists. 19 of them were without a cutoff man. Only one-third of base runners took an extra base on him, just to give you an idea of what, what that is. Typically for a right fielder now, 50% of the time you can go first to third, second to home combined. He was one-third. So instead of 
25 out of 50 advancing. It was like 16 or 17 out of 50 advancing. And those are guys that could be on third base or score. So those are legit runs saved. So Richard Hidalgo has 17 arm runs saved for that season, 2003. The current three-year leaders for outfield arm runs saved, nobody had more than 12. And that's three years combined. That was uh, Eddie Rosario and Juan Lagares had 10 or had 12. Aaron Judge had 10. Rosario was in left. Lagares was in center. Judge was in right. Uh, 17 in a season. I don't want to say it's an unbreakable record, but in this day and age, unless there's someone like a Loriano that can really chuck it. And Cespedes came close a few years ago, but didn't get there. I don't think anyone's touching 17. Thanks for sticking through the broadcast. I want to bring what David Cohn talked about full circle. So let's go extra innings. When I was eight, I was the only kid in my class with a copy of the 1983 Bill James Baseball Abstract, or as I first pronounced it, Abspart. I didn't understand the math in the book, but I liked the charts and the information. And I'm sure I learned a little bit about stats like runs created and offensive winning percentage. Ladder is a little old now, but it was a simple concept. What would a team's winning percentage be if everyone in the lineup hit like that player? There was also approximate value, kind of an early precursor to war in which a player got points for doing things well. The more points, the better. Each year I got a new Bill James baseball book and I learned a little bit more. Flash forward about 20 years to working at ESPN where the higher-ups told us, we're going to start doing analytics on our TV shows. We need you to know what you're talking about. I printed about 200 pages of baseball analysis, reading some of Bill's work, but also baseball prospectus and the glossary at fangraphs.com. A colleague gave me what she called her super sabermetric links, websites with which I became familiar. Through consistent repeated immersion, I picked up on what I didn't know, and I explained it to others. I watch and listen to a lot of baseball. Just about every baseball broadcast is very good. Some broadcast crews put more effort into their analytic content than others. A few subscribe to a service we offer, providing them with analytic data. Most are good in things like exit velocity and launch angle, or showing where balls are hit most often. I'd like to put out a challenge to all broadcast crews. Do a little bit more. There's a whole world of good information out there and lots of good ways to use it. Every game broadcast includes a recitation of defensive positions. Why not spotlight the player with the most defensive run saved? We'd like that. If you prefer an alternative defensive stat, the same thought applies. But I don't want to just shill for our data. Let me explain it from the perspective of a stat like FIP, which we talked about with David Kuhn. FIP estimates what a pitcher's ERA would be based on his strikeouts, walks, hit by pitches, home runs allowed, and innings pitched. In other words, if you have a good strikeout-to-walk ratio and don't allow a lot of home runs, you're going to be good in this stat. FIP is cool because it allows you to play Encyclopedia Brown and solve mysteries. Why does a pitcher have a 4-3 ERA and a 2-7 FIP? Well, one, his team's defense isn't that good, and two, his batting average with runners in scoring position is approaching 400. Acknowledging this within a pitcher's statistical rundown at the start of a broadcast better informs the viewer about that pitcher's numbers, and it makes a good broadcast even better. These are the types of stats that could be repeated every day. Repetitive, consistent immersion, a little at a time, would go a long way in continuing the statistical legacy of the game. Do it for the young fan as a way of teaching him. Do it for the older fan for the same reason. And do it for the game itself, because it's evolving, and we all need to evolve with it.
And that wraps up the fourth episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. For our guest, David Cohn, and my colleague, Andrew Kine, and our producer, Justin Stein, this is Mark Simon. See you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 